Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I want to welcome Dylan Sheridan, head coach from Cleveland State University, to the Philacrosophy podcast. Really pumped up to have you on board, Dylan. Uh, it's the third year uh, of the program, and I uh, can't wait to hear about that, hear about what you're up to, um, and talk a lot of lacrosse with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really fired up right now. We actually just just left the Urban Community School uh, on the west side of, of downtown Cleveland. We teach a class every Thursday morning from roughly like 10 to 1130 uh, in the fall. And it's learn to play for uh, inner city kids. And we just left. And, and uh, so that always kind of gives you some juice for the rest of the day when you, okay. you run around with those little guys. So uh, that was fun. And, you know, I'm uh, obviously very excited about uh, where we're at as a program and, and uh, how our fall is going and, and kind of where we're going this spring. It's so exciting to be back in the fall, isn't it? It's like for lacrosse coaches, I feel like September is like Christmas early. It's funny. It's for, for, for coaches, it's the best time of the year, and for the players, it's the worst time of the year, right? It's just this role reversal. But you can uh, – everybody's optimistic. You know, as a Browns fan, I feel like the fall and fall ball lacrosse is very similar to being a Browns fan in the offseason. It's like, <laughs> you know, this is our year every year. Um, but but, but uh, in all seriousness – it's a great time for us to, to improve and evaluate. And uh, I think as coaches reassess some things that you've done in previous years, maybe, maybe fix some things, but also a great time to experiment with new things, um, which is something that this is the first year I'm, I'm, I'm really getting kind of more experimental because I feel like we've got enough experienced guys and enough maturity that we can some try, try some things and our guys won't get too into it or, or lose too much steam if it, if it stinks, you know. So it's I been a from that perspective. I think it is so cool that you bring that up. I was talking to John Torpy. We were talking about experimenting. And I feel like there's a lot of coaches that are afraid to, afraid to experiment. They're, they're afraid that, it, you know, if it doesn't go the way they want it to go or there'll be some kind of, you know, bad result. I mean, to me, with the experimentation, there's – there's almost nothing bad that can happen because if you like it, you're going to keep doing it. And if you don't like it, you're going to fix it or, but like, what did you really lose? You know, but what are some of the things you're experimenting with right now? Um, you know, for me, trying, trying new things, particularly in special teams. And when I say special teams, I mean, uh, man up, man down, clearing and riding and face-offs. Um, and so we're trying new things kind of in all of those areas. Um, you know, not, not straying too far away from the conventional with the face-offs, but just new drills that I think can help us maybe evolving that aspect of, of our, our uh, team. And then with the man up, man down, and with the clearing and riding, almost entirely wholesale changes from, from previous years, which I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about. And we just actually got to, you know, see it against another team this past weekend. And it was, uh, oh, you did. it was somewhat successful. So I think enough, uh, enough so that we can build off of it. And, um, Certainly scratch some of it, but uh, excited about it for sure. Sweet. And what, how, how are the new rules manifesting themselves in the riding and clearing game, would you say? 
You know, uh, I, th I don't think you're seeing a ton of it uh, in terms of impact and riding and clearing. I think had they, had they kept with the original proposal of 20 to cross the midline, which would trigger 60, you would have maybe seen some more teams go with a trap ride type game plan. Yeah. But I think with it on possession, I think that kind of goes out the window and it's long enough where you can kind of continue playing the game as it's been played the last few years. Um, but with the knowledge that you can't really stall because you're going to get it back. And, and, and I think it's an improvement, honestly, in the short period of time that I've gotten to coach with it. I really like it. Um, just this week, actually, yesterday, we got a notification that there was another uh, amendment to the rule changes. Um, so previously, or, or not previously, but last week until this week, uh, yeah. if a flag went down, you'd get a reset to 80. And based off of the information we received yesterday, if a flag goes down now, uh, you do not get a reset. And so even the scrimmages that we played on Sunday, no longer the rules for those no longer apply. So uh, we'll still have some tinkering to do and some learning to do. Which is Wait, so the flag goes down and there's 45 seconds on and you hold the ball until there's 10 seconds left and you shoot or whatever, then you got 10 seconds for your man up. Is that what you're saying? No, no. So it was actually, if, if you're into the possession and let's say a guy slashes your guy and there's 60 seconds left in the possession, until yesterday, it would reset to 80 the moment that ref threw a flag. Got it. Now it'll stay at 60 and run down, unless there's a subsequent loose ball push or something that would reset it. Oh, it, so loose ball pushes will reset it. Loose ball pushes will reset it, yep. Got it. So it, it, it's interesting, and um, it's all good. I, you know, I think it, it's part of it, and I know people get frustrated with the rules constantly changing and stuff right now. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, we're working toward a better place, and we just have to be patient, and it'll all kind of solve itself. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. How's the dive roll manifesting itself? Um, it's funny that you ask. You know, the first two weeks, my guys were like, you know, uh, they were dug nighting it every opportunity. <laughs> and, uh, I, after they took a couple, you know, good hits, I haven't seen a dive in a couple weeks now. You know, I think they're scaling it back, and it's just kind of naturally um, playing out in the sense that if the opportunity presents itself and you can get it leveraged, you'll do it. But they're not, like, just taking off at all opportunities, you know. We had one pretty nice, a freshman uh, fourth this weekend caught, caught a guy kind of coming around the cage at a poor angle, and so he got kind of a backhand dive for a goal, which was pretty nice. But And those are fine because you're not going to see a massive collision, but there are some, and we will see them this year, where guys are going to get absolutely wrecked. And it's it's going to be very difficult for the, for the officials to discern whether or not the player was diving at the goal mouth or away from the goal mouth, especially when there's contact with the defender. Yeah. It's funny because, like, the thing that – I mean, you think about the hits and stuff in box. I know I would, you know, my son Colin plays a lot of box and, and, and every summer he would like get hurt diving. And I'd be like, dude, you got to stop diving. Like, I mean, if, if you got to dive and it's like the mental cup finals, do it. But like in the regular season, don't be diving. It's stupid because what really happens is guys land on you. Yeah. Where you really get hurt is you dive and the guy guarding you, they're just told, hey, dive on top of him. And then all of a sudden you're extended and you got a bigger guy landing on you and it, and it like hurts your elbows. I mean, it's also cement, but 
But um, I don't know if it's going to be the, the collisions with a slider as much as it's going to be your own man basically just landing right on top of you and it's actually can like mess up your shoulders and elbows and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it definitely – just anything around the crease area, right, is just going to be a lot more gray. And um, it, could, it could potentially result in some, some injuries, but I think it's going to really, no question about it, result in some, um, some arguable moments from yeah. the – uh, well, there already were arguable moments, so that doesn't change. But there's also going to be some great goals. And are you going to have to de- – are you playing defense any differently? I mean, are you going a little bit earlier? Are you trying to push people up the side rather than out, rather than turn them? I well, mean, the difference is, you know, before it was – the arguable moment was, was it a goal or not? Or was he in the crease? Now it's – well, it's either a goal or it's a one-minute unsportsmanlike penalty. Mm. So it's not just no goal anymore. It's now we're in the box. And it's, you know, it can be non-releasable if the ref chooses to, to make it non-releasable. So it could be uh, uh, costly, you know. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. that I'd forgotten about that, that part of it. And then what about defending it? I mean, do you see people, like, um, gearing up for going earlier on wing dodges? And- I think going earlier is certainly one strategy. I think you're not going to be able to push out an X nearly as much because you kind of got to hang that guy at the ball side pipe to maintain – some presence there to make it less inviting for that Dodger. Um, and that, that actually turns out to be an offensive advantage, right? If you can swing the ball through X with no hesitation, um, you can get a lot of things going. So um, it'll be interesting. I, I think that, you know, you're going to see defensive coordinators teach guys to push people upfield more than maybe in years past as, a try, as opposed to inside rolling them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with every, everything, right, there's a, there's a reaction and there's a reaction to the reaction and it'll be interesting to see how offensive players uh, utilize the rule to their advantage. It's awesome. Well, Dylan, one of the things that I, I love talking to people about on this podcast is just uh, their coaching journey. And, and along with that, I would love for you to stop and just tell us, you know, the, your, your key mentors and kind of the, the lessons and things that you've learned. And, and, and you know, certainly uh, you've had some great ones. So if you don't mind, why don't you tell us kind of where you got your start and, uh, you know, who you owe it all to? Sure. Yeah, no, I, um, I started playing lacrosse actually here in Cleveland at Western Reserve Academy. Uh, Skip Flanagan, who you probably have met over the years, uh-huh. uh, put a stick in my hand and said, you're going you're gonna to come out and play lacrosse. And I was a football, basketball kid, but they made you play three sports at our school. So I, I gave it a whirl and fell in love with it and enjoyed it. Obviously, um, you know, continued playing football and lacrosse through college, but, but become, you know, became more and more infatuated with lacrosse, the older and kind of more exposure I got to the game. Um, played in the MCLA, loved my experience there. I think that's what really stoked the fire for me to become a coach was the MCLA experience. And I think that's pretty unique, but, um, I had the opportunity to serve in a number of different roles in a club lacrosse program at the collegiate level, right? I was a captain, I was the president, um, and, and that allowed me to do things like fundraise and budget and hire coaches and buy equipment and schedule games. The things that coaches do at NCAA programs, our student athletes were doing in the MCLA, and that really got me um, fired up to be cool. involved with lacrosse and potentially become a coach. On the flip side, I was getting the, the opposite experience, and it wasn't bad by any means, but playing Division three football and, and feeling what that was like to be a student athlete, um, where I had no control or decision-making authority, but I was one of the, you know, foot soldiers. 
Um, so that experience, I think, really stoked the fire for me to become a coach. Um, after what school was that at? I'm sorry? What school was it at again? I was at Claremont McKenna. Uh, yeah. It's a small liberal arts college in, in Los Angeles. Yes, sweet. Um, and then from there, I went on to take my first coaching job at Pfeiffer University. It's a Division Two in North Carolina yeah. um, under a guy named Jason Dombrowski, who was a Pfeiffer alum. And, uh, really got to work with a, a great and hungry group of young guys. They were kind of in the rebuilding mode there um, and, and, and just loved that experience. Um, but North Carolina, for me, at that time, where I was in life, I just didn't want to kind of continue. Um, with that, I got offered a Division One women's assistant job for a lot more money, and so I took that. Uh, went out to California, so back to California for May. Started coaching the women's game, and that lasted a, a brief period of time. What school? St. Mary's College. Uh, St. Mary's. Yep. They no longer have Division One women's lacrosse, but at the time they had a program. That's in NorCal, right? Like Bay Area. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was there where I met my my now wife. Um, she was coaching at Cal Berkeley. Oh and, wow! Uh, you know, we got along really, really well. Obviously, became really great friends. And then, um, you know, for me, the kind of rubber hit the road. I didn't want to continue coaching women's. I didn't know if I wanted to continue in lacrosse or go down the kind of corporate path. Um, I had spoken with some people back in Southern California, maybe going down and, and coaching at a place called Chapman University and doing that thing, uh, which was a pretty dominant MCLA program. And for me, that's kind of, that was my niche. Like that's something I knew and I felt comfortable with. Um, or wrote option B, I could go back East and um, kind of follow Brian. Uh, she was taking over the head coaching job at Lebanon Valley College, a startup at a division three school. And they were also starting men's lacrosse. Uh, and the head coach there was John Hawes. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Coach Hawes, unbelievable uh, career and, and just great, great mentor toward me. So I took, I took the risk because I wanted to obviously be with Brian and went out there. And, you know, ironically, Coach Hawes did not give me the job right away hmm. as the assistant for no money. It was completely volunteer and he still didn't give it to me. <laughs> um, so I started working as a security guard and as an equipment man and everything on campus that basically needed done, I would do as kind of a part-time gig. And I just kept coming to his office every day. And uh, I think he just kind of realized this kid's not going away. Uh, and so he, he let me become his assistant coach. And we, we coached that whole first season with pretty much all players that had not been recruited that were just on campus. So we plucked a couple from the football team, a couple from the soccer team. We got a couple out of the frat house. And we fielded a Division three team, and from that experience, I got to see what a guy who really knows what he's doing, how he built the program, what his blueprint was for it, and kind of how he looked at it, both from a micro aspect and a macro aspect. And I really love that opportunity and take, took a lot from it. and Got to know Coach Oz's family as well, and they're just, you know, his wife Lisa and their boys are just great. Um, and, and, and I got out on the recruiting circuit and I got to work and I got to go to camps and do the top 205s and do the, the different, you know, your camps and all these things out there and network. And that was invaluable for me. I built some relationships that uh, are obviously very meaningful, me, meaningful to me to this day, uh, including my current assistant coaches. Um, and, you know, over the summer, I got an opportunity to go out to Colorado and become the volunteer assistant at Denver, um, pursued that. And things worked out that, uh, you know, the following year, well, that year we went to the Final Four and experienced a ton of success and 
and the following year, Trevor, you know, Trevor moved away from the program and I kind of got to backdoor my way into a full-time assistant job at the University of Denver, which I probably didn't deserve at the time, but I'm certainly grateful for. And, yeah, time is everything. Yeah, and uh, had a great four years at Denver. Saw a group of really, really talented kids come in, work really hard, accomplish a ton, and then graduate. And then uh, I kind of moved on with them and, and took an assistant job at Princeton uh, under Coach Bates. And um, uh, enjoyed my year there. We went to the Ivy League championship game and lost to Yale by a goal. You know, it was uh, a very That's fulfilling great. year. Yeah, it was great. We beat them in the regular season by a goal, and we lost to them in the championship by, by a goal. Uh, we beat Hopkins that year. We beat Cornell. We beat Harvard. We beat, um, obviously, Yale, like I said. So it was a good year, and I, I learned a lot from that experience because I was kind of out from underneath the tutelage of Brownie and Coach T, and I kind of had to do it on my own. And, yeah. and uh, Batesy was really great about giving me kind of the keys to, to the areas of the game that he kind of tasked me with, and, and uh, I grew a lot from that experience. And while I was there, Cleveland State added lacrosse, and so it kind of came full circle. Uh, I got to, you know, talk to a guy who, who you're familiar with, John Perry, yeah. uh, and, and learn about his vision for Cleveland State lacrosse. And obviously for me coming back home, it was a real enticing opportunity and everything kind of fell into place. And I got the, the chance to come back here and be the, the first coach in, in Cleveland State history. You and LeBron both came home around the same time? <laughs> <laughs> like within two weeks of each other. <laughs> Uh, I'm still here. I don't know who's smarter, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm so thankful that I got to be here during uh, this, this time in Cleveland's kind of history as a city because building a program is tough enough, but we got to do it with the Cavs going off, with the Indians going to a World Series, and now with kind of Browns mania with uh, Baker Mayfield and everything. And so for a group of 18 to 22-year-olds, they've fallen in love with the city. And um, awesome. And for somebody like me who holds it close to his heart, I'm excited to see all these kids from all over the country kind of become Clevelanders. It's fantastic. Well, that's an awesome journey. So now I want to go back and I want you, if you could, to just share something you learned, something specific, a story perhaps, um, you know, um, from, from, you know, Dabrowski, from, from Hawsey, from Coach T, from Brownie, from Batesy. Sure. I, I think what I, what I learned and what was really valuable for me at Pfeiffer and under Coach Dombrowski um, was that family is, is an important – it takes an important place in this game, right? He would have me over for, for dinner to his, to his house with his kids and his wife. Just a really generous person. Um, and I was fresh out of college, so I didn't know what I was doing. And um, He always said, and this is something that stuck with me for a long time, is that lacrosse is a game that's wasted on the youth. And um, I didn't really get it at the time, but now I, I, I fully get it and um, can appreciate it. Um, I also, while I was there, had to do a lot of the, the not-so-glamorous jobs. You know, I, I was, uh, in addition to assistant coach, right, I was like strength coach. I was uh, groundskeeper. I'm mowing the, mowing the field, lining the field, stringing the nets. Um, and, and all that, you know, while it was difficult at the time, makes me feel so much more grateful uh, for those experiences now and, and having, you know, moved on to places like Denver and Princeton where you don't have to do any of that, but, but still have those experiences in the back of my mind at all times. Um, you know, being with Hawsey, I think uh, watching him operate as a leader of men was just truly impressive. You know, he's a guy who is very um, no nonsense. Um, 
he's been to the top. He knows what that looks like, what that feels like, what it takes. Um, and he set a pretty high standard for his guys, albeit new to the game, right? He had kind of like this really delicate way of balancing realistic expectations. And yet these are going to be uh, the standards of our program. And if we're going to build anything here at, at this new program, we're going to need to hold these standards, even if a kid has never even played the game before. Um, and so I, I learned a lot from that experience. And obviously, again, going back to family, right, what, a, what an amazing family they have from a lacrosse standpoint, right? Hawsey and his brothers were all phenomenal players. And now you have his sons that are all incredible lacrosse players as well. Um, and just how they uh, kind of bond and how tight they are, that was really um, – impressive for me to see and something that I'm obviously aspiring to with, with my family. Um, working for Coach T, I don't know if there's enough stories in the world to kind of encapsulate, you know, what he's all about. Um, but I, I would say humility is probably the biggest takeaway. You know, um, here's a guy who's had uh, unbelievable levels of success, kind of unprecedented levels of success, and yet he's still flexible and open-minded enough to listen to ideas from you know, Brownie or listen to ideas from, you know, some kid who played in the MCLA who really probably shouldn't be talking, but he would listen and, and he would take it all into consideration and, um, and he was willing to change and ad adopt new things and try new things. And, and he's humble enough to do that and kind of uh, egoless enough to try those things really, really uh, left its mark on me from that perspective, you know, because he could easily say, this is what's worked for me in the past and this is what we're doing. And, and nobody would say boo, but he doesn't go about his business that way. And that's just not who he is. And um, I think that's why you see no matter what happens, no matter who's on his team, they're always successful. Because yeah, it's amazing. Kind of, so for the listeners that don't know, you married Coach T's daughter. And uh, so having, you know, the greatest cross coach of all time as a father-in-law and a mentor is uh, got to be pretty special. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And it, it still is to this day because I can call him with things and he's excited, maybe sometimes more excited than I am because some of the, the challenges that we face here are so unique that it, it's like fresh for him. You know, it's not something he's ever seen or heard before. And so he's thrilled about what we're building here um, and still gives me great advice, you know, almost daily. Um, but it is funny when you're like a young kid and you're like, okay, I, I want to try this drill or, have you ever heard of something like this? And he's like, yeah, when I invented it in 19, you're like, all right, I'm going to shut up now. I'll go back. Um, you know, when I was a, a young coach, probably mostly as a head coach, but I used to call coach T on the phone. I, I mean, I, I, it might not have been every week, but it was every two weeks I called him just to ask questions about anything and everything, particularly defensively. I bought his Princeton way defensive video. Uh, back in 1999 when I first took the job at Denver and uh, literally studied everything the guy did. And it was amazing how open he was uh, to answering questions, like in answering the phone. I mean, he would answer the phone every single day and, and he would be happy to chat with you about lacrosse, you know, literally at any time. So, um, yeah, you're lucky to, to have him as a mentor. And I feel lucky to have spent the time on the phone with him over the years, too. I mean, it's, it's amazing how actually accessible the guy is, considering, you know, you watch him on TV and you're just like, this guy is sort of untouchable, but he's actually a pretty normal guy. No question. And that's what makes him so unique. But it's also, <clears throat> I think he's been, and he would acknowledge this, very lucky to have guys like Dave Metzpower and Matt Brown 
because those guys are so great at what they do, it, it affords him uh, the ability to, to, to be him, you know, and, and be accessible. And he doesn't have to be a task manager all the time because he's got these great guys like Brownie and, and Betsy that no are you know, capable in their own right. So um, he sur surrounds himself with good people too. I think he's really, really um, a genius in a lot of ways, you know, and, and, and also how he treats his assistants, right? Like now I'm in the head coach's chair and I constantly think back to how, um, you know, coach T treated me and, and, and treated Brownie and treated, you know, our other assistants. And if I can uh, even come close to being as generous as, as he was with us, then I'm doing something right. Yeah, it's cool. And Brownie, uh, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about Matt Brown. Um, obviously, uh, I met him for the first time uh, when he was probably 17 years old on a home visit up to uh, Burnaby, British Columbia. I, it's funny because I was recruiting Craig Kahn, and, uh, who you probably haven't heard of, but he was a great player at UMass who failed out after like two years. And then Sean Greenhall, who was an All-American a couple times up at Cornell. They were both St. Catharines kids. My wife is from Buffalo, so I was visiting – you know, uh, I was visiting but the in-laws, and we took a ride over the border to St. Catharines to go watch some box lacrosse. I was like, you know what, maybe I can, you know, recruit some Canadians. I've heard this is pretty good lacrosse. And I went over, and I was like, oh, my God, the level of play is sick. It was a playoff game, St. Catharines against Orangeville. These guys, the St. Catharines kids were – it was like Matt Vink and Steenhouse and Billy Day Smith, Billy D. Smith and Craig Kahn and all these guys. And then on the other team was – was uh, Brody Merrill. Brody Merrill was top center of the power play as a 17-year-old uh, for, for Orangeville in that series. And I was like, oh, if I could get these guys at Denver, I mean. And so I recruited these guys, and I didn't end up getting them. But I heard that St. Catharines lost to some team called Burnaby from out west. So a couple months later, I get an email from some kid named Matt Brown, dear coach. And this is like in the early days of email, by the way. Like, I think the email was probably like a month old because – I don't even remember how long the email was around because I had just literally started checking emails for the very first time in like the fall of 99 or the fall of 2000 or something. So long story short, he's like, I, I led the league in hat tricks. I'm 17 years old. I had 44 goals. You know, we won the Minto Cup. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I struck out with these guys from the East. Maybe I'll have a better chance of getting guys from the West. And, so it was pretty awesome. You know, Matt Brown, his family, you know, Terry and Bonnie and, just the greatest people and, and Matt is just uh he was a great kid who worked his tail off total team guy um and not surprised that he's doing so well so tell us a little bit about you know your your uh what you've learned from him and 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 what you could probably continue to learn from him yeah it's uh it, it's great I mean for for me it came in as uh um, a guy that I really, really looked up to. Um, obviously, he, he's a very, you know, incredible mind for the game, and he's a great communicator and teacher of the game. So I looked up to him a ton, and um, the way he kind of brought brought himself down to my level and was able to communicate with me and, and basically become my kind of tutor, right? Like, I look at Denver as my four years. I was there for four years, and I was getting the Masters in lacrosse. Like, the first year, it was like they were speaking fluently in a different language, and I was just trying to keep up. And he uh, was kind of my guy that, that took me under his wing and kind of helped me out from an X's and O's standpoint to get me up to speed. And um, just a generous guy, hilarious. I mean, some of the stories he has of just his playing days are just so, so funny. But um, one of the rare guys who I think had the ability to play at the highest, highest level, but also has the capacity to teach and kind of empathy yeah. 
to be uh, in a player's shoes. Um, but a terrific, terrific person, obviously a family man as well. And I think that's kind of a common thread um, with all these guys. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's somebody that I could relate to because we're, I think, two years, two weeks apart in age. Oh, wow. But, but look up to at the same time and, and value kind of his, uh, his insights and input. And he's just been a, a terrific friend and a terrific teacher of the game for me and for, for a lot of folks. And his ambition, honestly, is what what has made its mark on me. I mean, he's one of the most um, entrepreneurially, uh, you know, from a lacrosse standpoint and just ambitious people I've ever met. You know, it's always the next thing, whether it's box lacrosse and what he's done with U.S. Box Law and Shane, Shane Santos, uh, whether it's Denver Elite, uh, you know, it's just a million things going. He manages to balance it all somehow and do it really, really well. And uh, I've always tried to kind of replicate that you know, at a lesser degree, but I mean, he's a pretty incredible guy. The fact that he can juggle all the things he does and still be so effective at his job. How big of a, how big of an emphasis, and I already kind of know the answer to this question, but I want to hear from you, uh, is there on, on skill? And, and, and if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, like, what did you learn from that perspective? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, really, I think it took me a little while to get on the wave, on his wavelength. Uh, and then once you kind of get on his wavelength, it's like he'll never look at the game any other way after that. You know, it's like, all right, I see the game, how you're seeing it, and this is pretty awesome. And so now when I recruit and what I'm looking for when I recruit, it's very um, like-minded to, to, to Brownie. And that's why when I was at Princeton, it seemed like every kid was the exact same kid that we were recruiting. Um, obviously, I don't recruit the same guys now here at CSU, but looking for similar skill sets. Um, but... <clears throat> He really teaches guys um, how to read a defense. And, and maybe that's a skill that people don't talk about. People talk about, like, the actual skills. You know, do you have a great stick? Can you finish? Um, do you throw hard passes? All these things are, are skills that you need to be successful. But he teaches players and offenses, so groups of six, how to read a defense, right? If they're playing this way, then this will be open. And um, – that allows them to be incredibly successful because it's not, it's like teaching a man to fish, right? Like yeah. he, he's sending them out there with that, with not a play, but this is the answer to the question. Um, so it, it's pretty cool to watch him do that and how he educates guys and, um, you know, makes them better decision makers on the field and the skill, obviously they're recruiting uh, pretty highly skilled players, but really it's the, the six inches between their ears that he's just kind of taking to a whole new level. Yeah, no doubt. And then how about Batesy? Batesy's awesome. I mean, he, he really kind of showed me a different style offensively, right? So I'm used to the Denver, the Brownie way and the ball movement, all this stuff, very choreographed motion, a lot of setup window dressing. And then Batesy's like completely the opposite in that he runs his, he runs his pairs and it's very organic, you know, and it lets players play and there's not a lot of choreographed stuff to it. Um, but it's also effective, you know, it, it certainly – uh, helps to have the Schreibers and the Fracaros and, and a lot of these, you know, the Couriers and these guys that were there, but um, different, different animal. Ironically, it was a Canadian guy teaching me to play more American sets and an American guy teaching me to play more Canadian sets. Um, but at any rate, I kind of learned, I learned a lot from both. Um, and, and, you know, Chris was really, really good about giving me autonomy and letting me coach the way I wanted to coach knowing that that was one of the reasons I came to Princeton and left Denver is because I wanted to have the ability to make my own mark and 
and um, have my fingerprint on a program. So he gave me that space and um, I'll be grateful for it, you know, for a long, long time. I had a blast coaching there, you know, uh, the kids at Princeton are incredibly bright, obviously, um, but also um, hungry to be successful, you know? And so with that kind of two things in mind, I was able to help get that defense kind of going. And, um, and I think the program, you know, really had a good year, uh, but it was short lived, right? The Cleveland state thing came and, I didn't even have a chance to make an impact from a recruiting side of things because I wasn't there long enough, you know. Um, but but Coach Madelon, who I actually coached with there, um, is doing an exceptional job of, of getting things back in, in order, and uh, I think they're going to be really successful here in the next couple of years. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool. So now you're a uh, you're head coach. Now you know you're you, being a first-time head coach is it's like being a first-time parent, isn't it? Like you really you can read all the books you want, but you really have no idea what it's like until all of a sudden the buck stops with you. But um, but it's incredibly exciting. I'm sure you've learned a ton, and I, I just want to hear a little bit about like for one thing how you've gone about trying to build culture because because clearly you know all of the none of it really matters unless you have the right attitude and the right mindset out of your players so how do you go about doing that sort of you know from the beginning and how do you kind of uh evolve it along the way yeah i mean at the end of the day right it doesn't matter how how hard you try there are certain things in recruiting that you just don't know about a kid right yeah those unknowns, right? is he going to be talented enough to make a difference? Is he going to be a wild card off the field? Uh, whatever the case may be, a lot of variables. I wanted to err on the side of rock solid human beings first, knowing that we weren't going to have a ton of success early on from a wins loss standpoint. And I didn't really care. Uh, I didn't care if we lost every game in the first year. And if you saw the schedule that we played in the first year, you kind of would get that. Like we yeah. probably weren't winning many games, but I wanted to make sure that every single guy in our program um, was made of the right stuff from a from a character standpoint, and that allowed us to expedite and accelerate this like culture building and uh, learning curve um, exponentially. You know, because they're they're the right kind of kids, and then all of a sudden, you know, in year two, year three, we start to bring more talent in. But the, the overall framework of our foundation is, is built on the right stuff. So now you mix talent in with all the great, the great characteristics and attributes of, of great people and hard workers, and this thing is now flourishing. And, um, you know, there so are guys. How, how do you, well, like, what are some of the things you looked for or stayed away from? I mean, not specifically uh, of people, but, you know, specifically with characteristics. You know, it's, it's uh, really it's kind of the difference between givers and takers, right? Like, I'm really trying to identify um, in recruiting from a personality standpoint, is a kid a giver or a taker on his team? You know, what does his coach say about him? Um, you know, just because he's the most talented kid on the team, he still might be a giver. He might be a guy that's elevating his teammates, making them better, bringing up young guys with the knowledge that at the end of spring, he's going to need some freshmen or sophomores to make a contribution. Like those are givers as opposed to the takers that are like, you know, I'm the best kid on my team. The rest of the guys stink or my coach isn't so great. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of comments that you can hear from kids and kind of immediately know, like, I know he's good. He's going to be a great player, but he's probably just not the right fit for us culturally. And we're going to move on. And, and um, 
that, that's been a really valuable piece for us. Um, have I made mistakes? Of course, right? And have I missed on guys that would have been great here? Sure. sure. Uh, it's just not an exact science, but um, I do think for the most part, we've kind of hit it really, really well. And, um, you know, you know, it is recruiting. If you take, let's just say, use 10 as the, as the number. If you take 10 guys a year, you're trying to hit or yield X amount of, you know, kind of like hits every year. You're not going to go 10 for 10. No. Well, we, we've, in the three years that we've brought in recruits, I feel like we've exceeded my expectations from a yield standpoint um, by a lot. And, and so that's why I think we're in a position to be successful a lot faster than maybe uh, I originally anticipated. How much homework do you do on the individuals, you know, in, in talking to other people? Because, like, you know, I mean, a high school coach oftentimes, you know, doesn't really tell you. Um, you know, the, <laughs> I remember this kid played for me at Denver. And, I mean, he was a sick athlete. And the coach was like, yeah, he's a great kid. And then, you know, it didn't work out because he really was didn't really want to be there and I thought to the coach I was like man that kid was kind of out of his mind he's like I know <laughs> and I was like buddy you could have told me you know so how do you how do you, do you do you talk to people do you talk to you know advisors do you talk to other coaches in the conference uh, teachers yeah yeah absolutely I think with the first class in particular I did a ton of homework I mean I was talking to guys basketball coaches they're guidance counselors I was talking to people in their community principals um, and, and it was that important, I think, at that time. Now we just have it set up so that we get to know the kid and his family from a standpoint of on the field and off the field. And, um, you know, if, if we like him on the field, we make sure that he comes spend some time with us. Um, but it's a little easier now just because we're, we're here and, and I let the kids be some of our, uh, our kind of filter. Uh, I want the kid that we're recruiting to be around the kids that we have on our team. And they're oftentimes going to be very honest with me. If this is a kid that's going to blend in well with our culture, or if this is a kid that's just not the fit. Um, but but it's tough early on. It's tough, and and I certainly, like I said, make made mistakes. And um, yeah, it's about. I mean, if the NFL is making mistakes with the kind of resources that they have, you know, we're all going to make some mistakes. Yep. So that's really interesting. Um, I got a question for you. What is your defensive philosophy? My defensive philosophy, um, I think uh, it's kind of um, probably similar to what Coach T's defensive philosophy was when he was at Princeton. Um, I'm very much a cut the field in half, uh, keep guys down the side, no rollbacks, slide, uh, and, you know, rotate and recover kind of guy. Um, you know, whatever recovery system you kind of want to put into place, I have kind of my favorites, but I don't think that that's necessarily important as long as it's very clean and clear cut for the guys. I think when you make things um, kind of gray or, um, you know, give the guys options in certain areas, you're, you're going to set yourself up for, for failure. So I'm very like this, if this, then that, and there's no questions about it. That way all six guys and the goalie can, can be on the same page. And, and if, things break down and you get scored on, which you absolutely will. Yep. You can identify, assess, and quickly problem solve, and then you can move on to the next play. It's when there's a lot of gray, it makes it very difficult to, to come together as a group after a goal and be like, all right, let's identify what we need to fix because there's just no clear-cut answer. What's your take on, you know, being multiple versus being very uh, simple as far as on defense and, and being able to slide from different places and – help from different places, uh, play picks in different ways? Uh, do you believe in 
you know, some players, some coaches seem to be able to do that. And so, and, and, and you're like, wow, man, it'd be awesome if we could, you know, I remember coach T talking about, yeah, sometimes we like to slide off the adjacent and, and second slide from the crease as a changeup. And I was, I was always thought that was so cool to think about being able to have like multiple defensive slide packages but I also felt like it was just so hard to do a lot of different things. So what, where, have you, where have you settled on that? Yeah, I'm not a big believer in being multiple, honestly. I think that what you end up doing is you stop being good at what you're good at. Yeah. <laughs> just get average at a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, again, for me, let, having the system be very simple, very clear cut, black and white, and then letting guys go be aggressive defensively yeah. is more important. Because when you start thinking and you get kind of paralysis by analysis, you become passive defensively. And if you're passive, especially with the way the game is now on the offensive side of the ball, they will score every time. Like the efficiency numbers are through the roof. The yeah. kids are so talented that you have to be aggressive and you have to be, you know, um, kind of be able to play without having to think. Uh, and so for me, if you're, if you're thinking about, am I going to shade this guy this way? Or am I going to shut this area of the field up? I'm going to do all these different things, slide, not slide. You're going to just get confused. And it's really tough for, seven guys to be on the same page when you have all these kind of like different nuances, there's all these room for margin for error. Whereas opposed to if you just kind of get good at something, this is it. And if they beat us, they beat us. But we're going to make them beat us. Totally. So um, do you like to pressure much? Do you like to get out on people or like, do you just sort of dial that up and down and, and how does pressure, you know, with these new rules factor in? Yeah, I'm not, I, I love to pressure, but probably not. Um, I, I I'd never been able to teach throwing checks or anything like that because I never came up learning that. Yeah. Uh, so I, we use the expression pressure with your feet, right? So by, by pushing out or making it difficult for a guy to receive the ball a little bit, now he has yeah. to take a couple steps back. It's disruptive and uh -huh. you're applying pressure and maybe making them play faster than they want without having to throw a bunch of checks and compromise position. So we say pressure with your feet and um, we found it to be effective and obviously uh, – you know, we were a work in progress defensively, but I think at times last year we were able to show what we were capable of. And I think uh, now that we have guys that are in their third year and we've got great goaltending um, this year defensively, especially we're going to really, uh, you know, put a good year together. You think there's more of a chance of there being more zone or more pressure at the end of shot clocks? I think it's going to, I mean, from my perspective, that will depend on score, you know, like where's, where's the game, you know, is the game within reach is the game, a little bit, you know, um, further extended in terms of a lead one way or the other, because that can dictate whether or not you want to turn it up or kind of scale it back. Um, and then obviously, you know, people kind of don't stray too far from their personality. Like the conservative guys are going to be conservative mm -hmm. and the guys that get after are going to get after it. So um, it'll be interesting though. I think it's definitely something to, to pay attention to and watch it as it evolves. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, what's your philosophy on offense? Um, very much uh, taken from the Matt Brown school of thought of ball movement and people movement. Um, I would say that we're heavily box influenced, probably a lot more so than even his offenses at Denver um, are. I've kind of tried to hybridize his offenses and Batey's kind of parish ocean offense. Um, and so we're doing a lot of that. I mean, I wish that we had the facility to play boxing on a regular basis. We don't, but mm -hmm. we have uh, created some other outlets in, in terms of summer lacrosse and Ohio Collegiate Box Lacrosse League for our guys yeah. to, to develop. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's exciting. Um, so it's kind of a mold, a blend of the two, um, the Denver stuff and, and the, some of the stuff we learned at Princeton. Um, again, I think 
specifically on the offensive end of the field, we just didn't have enough, and I don't mean this to disrespect any of our kids, enough talent or depth of talent to be able to do a ton offensively. We have a lot more of that right now and a lot more experience right now. So they've kind of seen the kitchen sink at this point now that we're in our third year. And so they're able to digest more. And so we're going to be more fun to watch, but also our guys are going to have more fun playing in the offense this year than, than the previous two. One thing that I, that uh, I always notice with, uh, with the Denver offense, and I'm wondering if you're working on this stuff too, is just how much they work on not only just getting the ball through X, but being able to get it to a guy in, who's positioning himself in such a way that it's very difficult for his guy to, to cover both him and help. And just the, the whole cat and mouse game of hangups, I look at that as such an amazingly important part of the game. And with new rules in the dive, it might actually be more advantageous, uh, you know. But what do you do? You spend much time thinking about trying to teach your ex guys how to hang their guy up and constantly, you know, read what their guy's doing and put him in a position where he's going to have a difficult approach to come play you if you can get him stuck on the other side of the cage. Not so much to get him stuck there forever, but more so to like get him to take a bad approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for for. Um... For us, it's any situation where you can't, where you can find it or identify one guy trying to play two. So if we're talking about the guy at X covering, you know, trying to slow down the alley dodge, but also snap back to the guy at X, mm-hmm. or we're talking about any other area of the field, I'm trying to educate our guys on, on all right, one guy's trying to play two here, and we can't let him do it, even if it's off ball, and, and the, you know, the ball's going down the righty alley, and the furthest from the ball is trying to split two. We can't let him split two. We can't let one split two, even though the ball's not in this you know, uh, two on one, we got to find a way to manipulate that to our advantage. And, and so that's how I'm trying to teach our guys is educating them on where are the two on ones, whether it's off ball or on ball, and then what we can do to manipulate that. Do we cut that guy, leave him one on none? Do we seal that guy? Um, you know, all sorts of different things. And so uh, I'm excited because these guys are sponges. They're really soaking it up. They're really um, taking, taking to film now, I think, like a, at a higher level than in years past. And so this thing is really starting to go in a, in a positive direction on the offensive side. Um, you know, in, in, the other, in other years, especially our first couple here, you know, some of our best offensive players were also some of our best defensive players. So it was like, all right, well, we're going to ask them to do all this stuff, and it's just going to basically make them, you know, kind of average at everything. Well, now we have a roster of 46 guys, which is pretty customary, which we haven't had in the previous two years. And uh, we can ask the offensive guys to play offense and the defensive guys to play defense. And so um, you're going to see a better product on both ends of the field as a result. And that's exciting for me. Um, you know, we could have had 50, 60 guys in the first two years. But again, it goes back to my original point with the recruiting. We weren't going to do that. We weren't yeah. going to just take bodies. We were going to make sure that they're the right kids. and Do it the right way. Yeah, and, and it could have hurt us or could have, we have had more success early had we done it the other way? Probably, but now I think we are absolutely built for long-term success. Um, and and um, I'm hoping that, that, that we start to turn the corner here this year. That's awesome. So your comment about, you know, you asked a lot of guys to play offense and defense, and now, you know, we can kind of let them play to their strengths. And a lot of people, you know, with the new rules are wondering, is it going to be more offense, defense, or more two-way middies? And I'm not sure if you really gave your answer uh, personally, but what are your thoughts sort of generally on that? Generally, I, I don't think you're going to see more two-way middies. Um, I think, you know, if you look at lacrosse with a shot clock in the MLL, there's not two-way middies. In the NLL, there's not two-way middies. So you're not going to see that, I don't think, at, at our level. 
I but agree. where I feel fortunate is that because we've played our middies two ways for two years, they're going to be comfortable in whatever role we put them in. And, yeah. and that's a huge advantage to us. And while it might have hurt us in the last year, it's going to be a, a big advantage moving forward. You were just talking about film a minute ago, and, and that was one of the topics I wanted to chat about. I mean, in the last year, I've really just – I've just – taking a deep dive into how to teach via video. So I have a coach's training program. You've come on actually done a nice game breakdown with me. I don't know if you've had a chance to, we haven't even talked about it. don't know if you've had a chance to go through it at all, but I've just been like diving into film and I, I, I feel like, you know, it's kind of like box lacrosse in the, in the early two thousands, people didn't really re realize the value of it. Uh, and I think that coaches obviously realize the value of film, but most people out there don't. And, you know, for me, I remember when I first started filming a practice, the very first one, it was because it, we were playing Villanova in 2000. And I was like, I don't, I want to play zone defense against these guys because all they do is invert and I'm scared to death of it, but I've never co coached a zone. So I was like, well, I'm going to film the practice and start watching it. And I, I from there on, I, I filmed every practice and obviously everybody does now, but you learn more from watching practice than you do from watching anything, in my opinion. I mean, just my overall knowledge. And so my question to you is, how are you guys leveraging film? And, you know, how important do you think it is for the high school players and high school coaches to realize that value of more than just a game film, but actually you're like really diving in to analyze what you're doing, how you're doing it? Yeah, I think – and I tell this to every kid that comes on a recruiting trip to Cleveland State when I walk them through the weight room and then into our film room. Um, those are the two areas where, where young men are the most underdeveloped when they get to the Division One level. Um, physically in the weight room, you know, many lacrosse programs do a great job preparing their guys from a weight room standpoint, but I would say the vast majority do little to no lifting um, as opposed to like a football program where every kid just, it's just commonplace. Um, so kids often come to college with minimal experience in terms of weightlifting, right? And then we talk about weightlifting and, and lacrosse even less from a film standpoint and exposure to film. They might film their games, maybe. They certainly don't film their practices. And so the, the room for growth is certainly, yes, skill on the field, uh, getting bigger in the weight room. But the biggest ceiling for growth, in my opinion, for, for kids as they transition from high school to college is in the film room. And um, that was a theory before. And now that I've done this with an exclusively freshman team at the Division One level, it's not a theory anymore. It's fact. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely a believer in it. Yeah. And um, we watch more film here than we have at any place I've been previously. And, and part of that is my, my football background and just I believe in it. Um, but also I just, I've seen the rewards and the understanding and, and the game slow down in so many ways for a lot of guys. And, um, I still need to figure out how to better leverage film and, and make sure that I'm using it and teaching it in a way that allows for our guys to learn at the, at the best rate. Um, I'm still not sure that I've like nailed it, but I'm getting better. And I also think that our guys are getting used to the language that we use and, and uh, understanding now how to see things from our perspective after a year or two of, of listening to us and experiencing it. And so now we're like, we're kind of all speaking the same language. So when I go in the film room, I can shut up sometimes and, and they'll talk and they'll be saying the things that I'm seeing. And I'm, that makes me smile. And I know that we're making progress. And 
um, you know, I can, I can now send them a reel out and not even have to administer the film, se film session myself with the trust and knowledge that they can watch it and understand what I'm looking at and what I'm looking for and, and that they'll pick that up. And that's a vast, that's a vast change from years past and a huge step forward for us as a program. So it's exciting. And, um, again, I think it's, uh, invaluable for our guys because at some point during the year, right, you're not going to get a significant amount stronger in the weight room during the season, right? If anything, you're trying to maintain, right? Your stick's probably not going to get that much better, you know, uh, mid season than, than what it is at the end of the season, but you can get a lot smarter. There's no limit to that, you know? Um, so I think that there's an area of the game where we can just kind of continue to skyrocket. Yeah. And, and it's so applicable to individual skill all the way through to X's and O's. And that's the cool part about it. I mean, every little, there's, you know, I've been doing this project lately where I'm just like trying to do videos breaking down every skill and, and, and virtually every nuance of every variation of every skill, which is like a massive job. But it's, there's so many cool things that you can do. And, and certain players do them, you know, naturally and certain players do more stuff. But I kind of feel like the very best players actually just have a presence of mind to use more skills than the next guy. They can all do it. I mean, you know, I mean, the difference between one player and the next at a high level is they can, they can do anything you ask them to do. The question is, can they recognize the opportunities? Mm -hmm. summon the, the that recognition into actually having either the, the confidence to do it or or just the recognition I feel that I feel like it's more recognition than anything else but but it's probably confidence mixed in um, but it's like in, in, in the sport of golf you would never hire a coach that didn't use video yeah. but, I mean you would never waste us a, a penny on that and yet in lacrosse like the, the video everybody gets is just to, to, for their recruiting highlight films and it's, it's, and it's very rarely of practice or of shooting. I mean, you know, if you, t if you take shooting on a goalie, you know, you look at a few first shots, you can tell immediately, you know, whether this person is manipulating a goalie or not, you know, are they holding the goalie up and yanking it low? Are you making the goalie twitch low to shoot it high? Are you, you know, where, which, you know, all these nuances. Uh, so it's anyways, I find it so interesting. Do you guys leverage the, 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 the film from an individual skill perspective all the way up through X's and O's? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's like, you know, it's hard sometimes to talk to players that have had success at the high school level um, because, right, they're going to work with the same tools every day and they're getting the job done. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, you're probably not going to be able to get the job done with those tools at this level. So let's add some tools to your toolbox. Right. But until they experience failure and realize that they need to kind of like add some tools – it's tough for them. And then once they get to this level, they go through, they play against a division one defense or a, a junior defender that they, you know, has experience and has guarded, you know, the likes of Justin Gutterding and some of these guys. Like, Oh, okay. So that, 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 that move's not going to work against this guy. <laughs> um, and so then we can go back and we can watch film and then we can go out and rep it out on the field and skeleton or shooting drills or stick work drills. And then watching one guy apply it and have success. All of a sudden you have a bunch of copycat guys. Yeah. Right? I love that. Like, yeah, it's the best. Uh, I used to think, you know, people thought there was all these Canadians on Denver when I was coaching there. And the reality was there was three or four, right? But all the American guys would watch the Canadian guys and then copycat them. You know, they would just take those moves and use them. And, um, and that's what we're trying to encourage here is that, all right, there's these moves that we can use. Maybe one guy learns one new and has success. And then we can show that on film and blow it up and make it a big deal in the film room. And then the next practice out, four, five, six guys are trying that same move. Um, and so that's been helpful for us as well.
It's awesome. Well, Dylan, last before we go, tell us a little bit about your um, about your box league um, and uh, how it's impacting you know the community uh, and and your program and why. Yeah, so you know uh, we stole this, and I, I use that term loosely, but we we um, are mirroring our, our league off of the one that they're doing in Colorado. So the collegiate yeah. box league um, that they started out there, we're doing here in Ohio. Um, ours is based out of Cleveland and Columbus. Uh, we're hoping to grow it to six teams, so four in Columbus, two in Cleveland, and then we'll play throughout the course of the summer. You know, they'll get a practice or two every week, a game or two every week, and it's all during the week uh, in the evening so that guys can have summer jobs or do summer internships. And our situation here, because we're downtown Cleveland, um, our guys can go do a nine-to-five at uh, an investment banking firm or at an engineering, you know, firm or wherever, um, and then get off and go right to the rink and 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 play box and it's been huge we had about a dozen guys do it this past year and to see their skill level their confidence um their iq all elevate uh it's unbelievable and so my hope is that we get a lot more of our guys to stay this summer but it's also just really fun it's just an exciting brand of lacrosse and i think for most of our guys they hadn't played much box their parents had certainly never seen it and so then when they get to come and, and get a taste of what it's like in an arena and a box game's going on, and it's pretty high level. You've got a bunch of Ohio State kids. You've got all these different colleges represented. And then, uh, you know, LSN picked it up. And so the games were, were streamed online and it just had a big time feel to it. And um, I think it's going to continue to gain in popularity. And I would love to see it trickle down to the youth level here in Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think there's enough um, – knowledge or exposure to box lacrosse in this area for us to start it at the youth level and work up. I figured if we could start it at the top and let kids see it at that level, it will trickle down and kids will want to play. So that's kind of the, the long-term goal and hope um, is that it'll, it'll take hold at the younger levels. But for the time being, we're the beneficiary and that our players are getting better and better. They love to compete. Um, and, uh, you know, it, hopefully it'll continue to grow. It's awesome. I wish they'd had that when I was in college. Yeah, me too. It's pretty cool. I mean, I was, and I was in California, right? So I'm driving hours just to find anybody that, that wanted to play when I was in college. But uh, it, it's, uh, it's growing everywhere. And I think you're going to see these collegiate box cross leagues jump up in a couple different cities this coming summer. And, I bet you will, um, yeah. If it becomes a national thing, and it, it could be pretty cool because I know that, uh, you know, the NLL is looking for American-born guys, and um, hopefully we can become a feeder system for that. No doubt. Well, I've spent a lot of time in box rinks over the last number of years, and um, the what the schedule that you guys are playing is pretty much the same as in Canada. You practice once or twice a week. You play games once or twice a week, and that's at the junior A level too. I mean, they're not playing more than four times a week, um, and that's plenty. A lacrosse box across time is double time with the amount of touches and reps and shots, and the fact that you guys have practices involved is so cool because. There's like literally nothing more fun, in my opinion, than shooting on box scores. I could do it all day long. I, I literally love doing it. And I did all summer. My daughter and I and, and a couple of these girls were all up in uh, Ontario for the summer. And we like literally would like rent, rent floor time and, and pay, pay a Canadian goalie 20, give him a 20 spot American and have him hop in the goal for an hour, hour and a half and just shoot. And the girls couldn't get enough. Of it. I mean, it's like literally so fun. So that's awesome. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, best of luck. Um, really look forward to seeing how you guys do. And um, I'll check in soon. I want to talk some X's and O's with you. 
Yeah, well, hopefully I'll see you, uh, if not sooner, then that St. Patty's Day we play Carolina in, uh, in Baltimore. That'd be great. You do? I don't even know. I, don't, I haven't seen that Carolina schedule yet. So Yeah, um, St. Patty's Day at, uh, at the U.S. Lacrosse facility, so it should be a good one. Love it. All right, man. Well, listen, good luck. Thank you so much for coming on, and we'll be in touch. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. Right. Take care, buddy. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool.